The following podcast has been made possible by the generous members of our Patreons. So if you like our podcast, you want to join in and contribute and find mountains of other content while you're there, join in at patreon.com forward slash Ian Boltsworth and patreon.com forward slash burials and beyond. Thank you. And welcome to Loopholes, your weekly discussion podcast about all things esoteric and esoterotic. I am Dr. Kate Cheryl. Hello. And I am Ian Bowlesworth. Hello. And Kate forgot to find out which episode it is, so she couldn't <laughs> say what the episode oh, number was. It's episode and thirteen. You can see her in real life the way she just stared at me <laughs> in panic, like she had no way of getting this information. <laughs> It's episode 13. Unlucky for some. Is it unlucky? What's your thoughts on things like that? Do you get uh, superstitious about things you... Some things, yeah. I mean, I, I still don't walk under ladders, but I think that's more from like a, a safety perspective. Right, okay. What about stepping on the cracks in pavements? Uh, my mum's back's knackered already, so I don't think me jumping across them is going to change much of that. Oh, is that the saying? It breaks your mum's back. Wasn't it step on a crack, break your mother's back? I don't know. I didn't have rhyming when I was a kid. Did you not? Hadn't it not been invented yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No such thing as rhyming. <laughs> so we've got a ton of comments. Yes. Um, I've just been through them. I've done some edits to them and things, but it's still loads. So should we just crack on with them? Because yeah. this is always the first half of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Sophie Cleverly, the cleverest of all the Sophies, has commented saying that aliens are a bit of a weird one for her, that when she was a kid... She was into aliens and UFOs and had those plastic blow-up aliens and those sticky ones that you were meant to stick together and they'd make an alien baby, but they never did. Okay. But it seemed like a real cultural thing in the 90s, but her interest wore off after that, whereas ghost business stuck around right. because she's up for someone telling her a story about a spooky old building where someone was betrayed in the Civil War because it's interesting historically and what it says about people, whether or not the ghost is real, whereas she sees people seeing a flying saucer as quite two-dimensional, which I think is quite an interesting point of view. I think a lot of people seem to come from that perspective. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. And I think the, some of my comments that would okay. be contrary to that idea as well, G- ghosts are less tangible, surely. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that people said in my comments, Dan Norton said that as a teenager, he was very mm-hmm. obsessed with UFOs. And despite being a lot more sceptical now, I've always felt that the idea of alien visitation was a lot more plausible than things like ghosts, as the idea of alien visitation is still rooted in this plane of existence. Mm. The fact that we can scientifically prove that there are large numbers of other planets out there then means there must at least exist the possibility of life of equal or greater intelligence to humans. And with that possibility must at least exist that we have been visited. I think that's the two angles you can really come at, isn't it? People that go more for ghosts. Maybe we should do like a poll. You know, would be more spiritual in their lives or maybe more historically minded whereas ufos are a lot more scientific and 
tangible within the realms of esoterotica, of course. I think it's to do with boredom. Okay, okay, interesting. This is my genuine theory on this, on the UFOs versus Mm -hmm. ghosts. I'm sure there's many, many people who straddle both camps and enjoy both things. But with ghosts and ghost hunting, weirdly, you can be proactive about it in your own mind. You can believe that you're being proactive. So you can go into a house, pay an extortion amount of money to some ruthless landlord, set up your kit, have bleeps going off, sit in the dark, put your night vision on, have a wander around, scare each other, get each other all wound up and keyed up and all that. It's quite a proactive experience. Mm -hmm. Whereas with UFOs, you can literally sit in your garden and look at the sky. (laughs) That's it, isn't it? That's all you can do. You go out into your garden and you look up and go, come on. (laughs) That's all you can do. But there are UFO groups. There are UFO groups up and down the UK. Admittedly, far fewer than ghosty types. No, no, no. You can read about it and you can Mm -hmm. research it and you can read testimony that you can either believe or not believe. You can have posters on your wall, I believe. You can sit and watch the X-Files if you want. You can do all those things. But in terms of the actual proactivity of the hobby yes only one of them allows you to not be quite oh. bored out of your mind i mean i personally yeah. find it boring anyway but yeah in terms of the actual doing of it you can only do one of them yeah which is ghosts you, can, you can't do ufos i would say that ufo groups do have field trips where they go up to a hill and look at the sky for a yeah, minute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what can they actually do? What can they do to entice aliens short of dropping the trousers and sticking their bum out and going, come on, I'm, I'm more than happy. <laughs> yeah. You have full consent for your probe. What do they do then, these UFO groups? What do they do? Well, they, they get telescopes and equipment and <laughs> have a look, don't they? There's, there's exactly. big groups up by the Humber that think that there are certain spots in the UK that yeah. are... UFO magnets. Yeah. And one of those, unsurprisingly, is quite near me. Right. <laughs> and there are lots of people that will go on day trips because they believe that if you stay there long enough, you will see okay. something unexplained in the sky above. But you understand what I'm saying is there is nothing they can do. Oh, no, completely. All they can do is just stare. That's it. Yeah. It might be a social night out for them and all the rest of it. They might thoroughly enjoy it. I'm sure they do. But yeah. in terms of the proactivity of the actual task in hand, I mean, that one is completely fictional. You know, they're kidding themselves that they're doing science, but only one of them supplies that for you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an interesting point. The thing I do want to contest as well, that Dan did allude to there, and again, it was mentioned later on in the comments, Paul Rawlings mentioned it later on in the comments, saying, regarding aliens, while I don't believe that they're merrily touring our solar system looking for anything with a bottom they can probe, I'd absolutely agree with Kate that there must surely be life out there somewhere even if it's just a blob with cute ears, the universe is massive with 40 to 80 billion sun-like stars in our galaxy alone, according to the internet. Maybe <laughs> life might be rare in the universe, but it feels statistically unlikely that the Earth is unique in having life. See, that's my kind of stance. Yeah. But my kind of stance mm-hmm. is, tell me the statistics then. Mm-hmm. If it's completely implausible that we're the only life anywhere... Yeah and it's more plausible that there is other life, then, fine, tell me the statistics then. So tell me, whilst the odds are hugely stacked against us being the only one, to me, that is a projected logic Mm -hmm. that doesn't have to bear out. It has to be. Well, it has to be a projected theory based on the data that we've got, because, you know, we are hampered by our own technology. 
really, aren't we? I mean, we can only explore a certain amount of the universe, so everything else will have to be extrapolation. And I say this as someone who has got a GCSE in statistics. Well, there we go, but it's a hijacking of probability, isn't it? Because it's because you can't comprehend the idea that there can be only one. I wouldn't say that it's a hijacking of probability. Then explain it to me. If it's a theory, it's not a certainty. Okay, there's 40 to 80 billion sun-like stars. I'm now passing on Paul's internet research. Yes. <laughs> How many would be enough for yeah. it to not be ridiculous? How many of them will have life on them? Look, I don't know. We'll have to get in touch with NASA, but I only got a C on my statistics GCSE, so I think you're asking a bit more, a bit too much of me. Do you know what I mean, though? Yeah, I don't know what the tipping point would be. Why is it so Mm -hmm. ridiculous to think we are the only ones? I suppose it would be to do with the odds of a, a replicated climate, a climate able to support life maybe judging on other galaxies or other solar systems that people have been able to spy from a long way away you know Mm. they can make judgments based on that whereas they can't say oh yes this is inhabited by the blog people who all have 15 arms and three eyes they might be able to say well this atmosphere appears to have a higher probability of being able to support life as we know it so everything will just be a projection but we're on separate planets on this planet if In your kitchen tomorrow, you went downstairs and there was an ant going across the work surface. I understand the probability of there's more ants than this one. Yeah. They're coming from somewhere. I get that. It's the bread bin, isn't it? It probably is the bread bin. I get that. (laughs) But what I don't understand is the idea of applying that same logic to planets, to solar systems, Mm -hmm. going, because we exist here... If we travel through space, there must be others. Yeah, well, it's probably not as simple as that, as humans exist, therefore little green men exist. But neither of us are mathematicians, and neither of us have those statistics I to think handle. the logic, though, that is applied is as simple as that. I think people do apply that logic where they do think, because I exist, there must be others out there. Yes, when, when it's distilled down to its... And I think that's a flawed logic. Yeah. Paul also said, by the way, that I'd mentioned the argument about the lack of photo, video evidence of UFOs and ghosts. Um, has there ever been an invention with a greater impact on esoterotic research than the smartphone? Well, I think that the application of cameras changed esoterotic research a lot, especially when you get pictures that were taken that inexplicably contained ghosts, you know, mm. in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But definitely, when... People have a camera in their pocket. They have smartphones in their pockets. That's definitely widened the field and has made Esoterotica accessible to everyone. But yeah, like you said, at the same time, wide accessibility also muddies the waters. Well, it doesn't just muddy the waters. It it makes, again, if we're arguing about probabilities and things, we we can apply probability arguments to that. It's like, well, why? Given that everyone is wandering around now with a camera in their pocket... hugely accessible video camera Mm. as well people can take these images straight away why are we not getting a flood and an absolute torrent of pictures of ghosts and i mean things that aren't like oh that looks a little bit like i mean actual cast iron yeah that is a picture of it that passes all the photoshop tests as well Mm -hmm. that's been my contention for ages what about if you just if ghosts are like vampires in mirrors, they just don't show up on camera. What you're doing now is what the Easterotic community have had to do with smartphones. Oh, well, the problem is <laughs> with a smartphone. Yeah. I hear what you're saying about how everyone has a video camera now. However, it yes. won't pick up this, that and the other. And the other tactic they've taken is something we've discussed already, is they've mm-hmm. hijacked it for themselves. They've gone, right, 
well, this piece of kit that is going to destroy us, mm-hmm. we need to utilise within our ghost hunting. Right. <laughs> hey, presto, your phone can now tell you if there's a ghost nearby. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Maybe if people are too busy looking at those apps, they won't be thinking, hang on a second, why does this not disprove the entire existence of the paranormal? Full stop. (laughs) I also think that judging by the influx of paranormal caught-on-camera TV shows, there is a flood of purported esoterotic smartphone evidence. Mm. But within that, it's... It is so mixed, you know, with some things you will have a carrier bag being presented as, is this the, you know, undead spirit of a lady in waiting? And then you'll have a dark shadow. It's so, so mixed. But again, it's accessibility. People want more of it and people will produce more of it. Okay. Next comment. (laughs) Uh, Alex Parnell agrees that alien technology probably hasn't come far enough as to incorporate the bottom. (laughs) So, right. (laughs) Cheers, might have paraphrased that, but cheers, Alex. <laughs> so that was my, this was my argument that Whitley felt nothing when he had a big needle put in his brain, yeah. but when he had it put round the back, it, he was in agony. Yeah. So Alex <laughs> is saying that maybe <laughs> alien medical technology has sorted out an anaesthetic quality to their uh, he, brain examination. He just enjoyed my um, suggestion on the matter. Yeah, yeah. Paul Kenny suggested that uh, he always thought that if aliens existed, there would be more like animals. So just like his cat that has no interest in space, why would other animals? Which I think is fair enough. And I've had plenty of guinea pigs in my time and not one of them seems to have been interested in astrophysics. Paul Kenny also commented on mine and was uh, re-emphasising that he was terrified and traumatised by Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, something Mm. I said in the last episode. Martin Ireland said exactly the same thing and his dad used to make the noises to scare him, which I think is child Child abuse. abuse. Yeah. Sorry, Martin. I mean, I know it's meant to be a bit light-hearted, but you might want to consider rigging us to ransom. <laughs> On mine, there were a lot of... I mean, lovely, just nice general comments. Mm-hmm. Lucas Schmidt left one. Kevin Moore, Draken64. Craig Harrison, as always. Matt Ebbs. Quite a lot of them were saying as well about being frightened of aliens and frightened of alien invasion. Not always mm-hmm. relating it to War of the Worlds. And other people sort of going into their own head mess. Yeah. Like Rob Graves, <laughs> for example, said, one of my recurring nightmares as a kid was that everyone else in the world was a robot and at night they would peel off their fake skin and come into my room and experiment on me. So whether you think it's aliens, robots or time travels, there seems to be a basic human fear of being interfered with in your sleep. (laughs) I'm not sure that's a universal fear, you know. I think some people like the idea of being interfered with in their sleep. Dan Pauly said, read the market for horror. Historically, horror fiction has always had a boom in times of economic distress. That was because we were talking about that we keep getting told, and I certainly keep getting told, because I'm writing this horror anthology, that there's no market for a horror anthology. <laughs> we have so many doomed projects, it's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. On the subjects of sleep, by the way, mm-hmm. that was mentioned there by Rob Graves, if that is his real name, <laughs> there were a few comments this week about stuff to do with the sleep. Annette Truby said that she lived with sleep paralysis for several years, mm. It's terrifying when you experience the full gamut of sensory symptoms and feels incredibly real. Throughout history, a running theme in sleep paralysis is the old hag. Mm. It taps into our innate fears. Our brains try to make sense of why we're conscious, but cannot move, and it latches on to what we fear, whether that's consciously 
or subconsciously. Uh, the anxieties of dementia do the same thing, she says. So I think those who believe they've been abducted may have actually experienced sleep paralysis. Annette also mentions that she was terrified as a kid from War of the Worlds, couldn't even look at the pictures of the red weed. While I didn't grow up really with War of the Worlds, I had a similar red weed-esque fear with right. Watership Down, where yeah, yeah. the the Warrens were getting torn up at the beginning and it was Fiverr's vision of the Warrens filled with bodies and there was these sort of red swaying trees and it was really trippy and frightening. And right. I think there's kind of, there's different versions of red weed throughout the years. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it, where your public persona slipped. So this sassy, smart, clever really clued up person Mm -hmm. kind of ruling the airwaves as you have been of late where the mask slipped and it was just Kate talking about bunnies oh I'm sorry if you do not find the beginning of Watership Down terrifying you are not human I've never seen it you'll love it why would I love it I'm not putting myself through that why would I love it (laughs) because I really love seeing animals killed It's the storytelling, it's the world building, it's the legends. It's it's amazing, but it's Fiverr. Yeah. Fiverr is an esoterotic rabbit. He has visions and, you know, premonitions of the future and he sees the Warrens You're filled really with You're really reaching here. I am you're not. Really I am not. <laughs> if you're trying to get Watership Down and Bunnies into this podcast, you are really reaching. <laughs> That's my contention. Blue Crayon informed us that the term UAP is the new official initialism, which stands for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And they said they use the term official advisedly because you both may or may not know that in 2021, the US government admitted for the first time that UAPs are real. Of course, this doesn't mean that they are alien in origin, but the fact the US government now admits that physical objects they cannot identify are flying around in US airspace is still a very intriguing situation they are now beginning to treat the phenomena as a national security issue. Well, you would, wouldn't you? You would treat it as a national security issue if you have claimed airspace and suddenly something is in there that shouldn't be. Mm. But that, as they say that, that's not... That don't mean now, does it? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't, though, does it? No, yeah. You could take a drone out tomorrow and fly it over someone's house Mm. and it's not officially meant to be there. It's because someone has invaded the airspace. So you can invade airspace without it coming from another planet. Yeah. But they also mentioned the case of Betty and Barney Hill, who were an American couple who also claimed to have been abducted. Yeah. Which we've discussed in real life. Yeah, talking about this the other night, weren't we? In passing. Yeah. Blue Crayon said, if you both ever return to the subject of UFOs and or abductions, then the Betty and Barney Hill case would make for great listening. So we, we had already been discussing that as a possibility. I mean, too raw at the moment after enduring Whitley Strieber last week. <laughs> yeah, we need a little Strieber buffer, but I think I think we should touch on yeah. it. Yeah, and last one, Jamie Wallace said, I think some other people actually discussed this, but I might not have popped in my notes, but there was an issue with the regression therapy mm-hmm. part of these stories. And Jamie said, I find regression therapy really problematic. After reading about the problems, the Freudian approach to unlocking childhood trauma caused during the 1990s and right through to today i can't believe anything revealed through that approach is reliable yeah i don't think things like that are like admissible in court no i'm pretty sure they're not too but i guess things can be mentioned anecdotal mentions of things can still sway i think anecdotal evidence Mm -hmm. is a huge part of all of this yeah it's it's the human experience isn't it and we're looking at immeasurable effects 
on intangible things. Yeah, but also of enormous claims. Yeah, so things yeah. that really need evidence backing them up before you take it seriously. Yeah. And the fact that we're capable of creating and inventing in our own minds mm-hmm. to the point where we can also convince ourselves that it's real. Yeah. If indeed it is inadmissible in a court system, that's probably the reason why, isn't it? Because you can just create it. But, you know, you can say all manner of things in court, can't you, and have them struck from the record. But as long as the jury hears it, the jury hears it. Boston Legal's taught me anything. It's that. <laughs> well, there we go. There's the comments. Thank you very much, as always, for all your comments, all your essays that you sent to us. I always enjoy reading them. Ten minutes before we start recording. (laughs) Desperately crossing things out and underlining other things and putting exclamation marks all over it and hoping beyond hope that I'll be able to make head and a sense of it when we're actually talking in real life. (laughs) It kills me in the edit, like... Yeah, of course, but please do keep them coming in. It's lovely. If you could hear how we record this, like how when we do the comments, what we actually go through in the recording of it, not this polished thing you're listening to now, if you could hear... (laughs) How we're going, hang on a minute, Let me. I'm sure someone said something about it, just give me a second. <laughs> we're both scrolling through iPads trying to find stuff. No, keep up the illusion, come on. If you could hear the ordeal, it puts us through. <laughs> well, there we go, introduce us. Welcome to Loopholes, episode 13. So, today's topic, what have you got? I thought we'd have a lovely cheery chat about death. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Woohoo! Winter's drawing in. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought we'd have a chat about NDEs and OBEs being near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. Are they recognised acronyms for those things, or have you created those yourself? No, they, they are the... Yeah. I haven't invented them. For once. Okay, For fine. once, it's a real so, thing. <laughs> teachers again. NDE, near-death experience. Yes, OBE, out-of-body experience. experience. So we're all learning at the same time. (laughs) But I think these are interesting. They're (laughs) interesting. Near-death experiences. I know it sounds really self-explanatory. The experiences that an individual has when they're either close to death or have medically died, and obviously only for a few minutes or something, they're what these people see or experience when physically they should be experiencing nothing. Right, okay. There's a whole host of of things that people have reported from, you know, warmth and bliss to seeing Jesus and even hell. Right. So it's it's not all sunshine and rainbows and tunnels of light, but they're really interesting things to study. And so out-of-body experiences kind of encompasses everything like spirit walking, astral projection, as where you kind of... If you've seen the X-Files, you'll know what I'm on about. (laughs) It's when you can kind of command your soul to leave your body and then interact independently of your physical self. I mean, a lot of this does actually feed back a little bit into some things that were mentioned during the comments section earlier on. Yeah, with regression. Yeah, and to do with the capabilities of the human brain, so the, 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 the capabilities of imagination. So rather predictably, my take is very much weighted towards that. Every night we go to sleep, or for some of us, mm-hmm. early in the morning <laughs> we go yeah. to sleep, if we're lucky, mm. and have very real experiences. We see people who are no longer around, we have rows with exes, we get kidnapped sometimes. 
<laughs> Loads of things happen yeah. In, yeah. in our dream state, which is a creation of our mind. Yeah. Some people put stock in that. Some people mm. think dreams mean things. Some people think that they are actually corresponding with dead relatives or what have you yeah. in the dream world. But my contention is that these are all a creation of the human mind. Yeah. Gary Shandling, who I'm a huge fan of, who's away now and much missed... Gary Shandling, the comedian, actor, Larry Sanders, he did It's Gary Shandling Show, things like that. He was a very spiritual man, and he discussed regularly that he had a near-death experience in his, I want to say 25, maybe a bit later, 26, Mm -hmm. 27, where he was in a car accident. It was horrible what actually happened to him. But in the throes of this near-death experience, it was a genuine, he, he very nearly died. Yeah. He heard a voice ask him, do you want to continue living Gary Shandling's life? And he said yes, and then came back. Yeah. That's what he... he I was going to say claimed, but I mean, that was his experience. Mm. Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of similarities with other near-death experiences. Yeah. Where people have been, you know, in serious accidents or they've, you know, something have gone wrong with an operation and they felt like they have been asked do you want to stay here? Or, you know, people have tried to reason with a figure saying, no, I need to be here. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to give you a direct quote from Shandling because I think this is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. He said, since then, I've been stuck living in the physical world while knowing without a doubt Mm -hmm. that there's something much more meaningful within it all. That realisation is what drives my life and work. So Mm -hmm. I would be personally thankful that it drove his work and his his life as well, I guess. You know, his work is something that's meant a lot to me and, as I say, much missed. But the use of the phrase without a doubt, I find a a bit of an issue there. Yeah, but I I think with most near-death experiences, when they're discussed, they're tagged along with their transformative power. Yeah. So whether or not you believe that the individual has you know, ascended into, you know, a heaven, another realm, whatever we're going to call it, the impact that this has on the individual Mm. is undeniable. But, you know, the the exact nature of what they experienced is what people are studying and what falls into the world of esoterotica. Well, I woke up from a dream the other day in floods of tears and was crying for a good half an hour. You know, it it upset me that much. Mm -hmm. So the impact it had on me was undeniable. Yeah. But if we're looking at the actual authenticity of it, I know that that dream was mm-hmm. a dream. It, the things that happened in that dream couldn't have happened in real life. I'm not doubting the impact. My doubt is that this is actually an experience that was authentic. It, mm-hmm. I, I feel that it's a created narrative in, in the, he- the head of the, ex- the person experiencing it. Well, there's, there's kind of different approaches to near-death experiences. There's the, the spiritual, you know, the esoterotic way of looking at these. And there is the scientific way of looking at things. Yeah. But by definition, NDEs are hard to study. Near-death experience. Well done. Because they're so transient. And so this, the study is mainly done by collecting accounts of experiences or like right. messing about with rats and rat brains. And also, when you get personal religious and spiritual beliefs, the individual will interpret what they experienced in different ways, from personal life-changing accounts, like the one you mentioned, to yeah. children's accounts of near-death experiences, which in America <laughs> are quite often turned into film franchises and very popular Christian books. Now, are there any experiences, by the way, this has just occurred to me, are there any experiences of people who have been, let's use Christianity as an example, Mm -hmm. so Christian people who 
have a near-death experience or NDEs, it's more popularly known. Yeah. And come back and go, oh, there's a white light and I could hear God's voice and it was this, this and this. Are there any examples of people coming back from near-death experiences just like looking a bit sort of perturbed and people saying, what happened? And them going, it, it was Buddha, it was Buddha. God, I, <laughs> <laughs> this is really bad, I've got, I've got it all wrong. <laughs> well, well, what happened? I, I was... <laughs> Going towards a white light, I thought it was it was Buddha, and he just like was just looking at me really smugly. <laughs> well, there's there's kind of there's nine broadly. There's, there's kind of like a checklist of nine things okay. that people don't don't fulfil all of them, but check off the majority of them. Yeah. Uh, when they assess their their NDEs, and one of them is kind of meeting a, a supreme being made of light. But it okay. seems that people interpret this as God, Jesus, Buddha, yeah. etc. But other yeah. people, maybe who did have Christian, Buddhist, Muslim faiths, have had these experiences and didn't name this being as being something recognisable from their faith. Yeah, okay. Just a holy yeah. person who was full of love and understanding and light. And the common ground is that they want to be with this being forever because it's so warm and welcoming. Bit stalkerish. <laughs> On... Come on, give, give the light a bit of space, mate. <laughs> Don't have to be with the light all the time. <laughs> Forever's a very big word. <laughs> but, um, of course, neuroscience says that these experiences, NDEs and OBs, are, are subjective and can be due to chemical floods, chemical imbalances, or um, oh. a disturbance in the force. Neuroscience says that, yeah? Well, they're still studying it. But they're so hard to study because if someone's having a near-death experience, like if someone's in a hospital or something, the individuals that will be there at that moment will be family or medical staff. They won't be psychologists or or scientists. And so a lot of scientific progress that's been made on understanding these has been done on trying to recreate the experience as much as we can on rats and kind of flooding the brain with serotonin and seeing how the rat's body physically reacts to this. So this daft fantasy narrative has meant that loads of rats are put to a near-death state so we can try and work it out. Seems that way. Yeah. Well, no damage done there, then. (laughs) I'm not condoning it. I'm not condoning it at all. But there have been so many interesting studies done of, like, personal near-death experiences, medical professionals that go get through priests, things like that. Okay. And I was looking through my collection of esoterotic books in uh, in my very, very tidy office, and I did find one that was um, written by a Swiss geologist in 1871, someone called Albert Heim, and he was a keen mountaineer, and he fell 70 feet and had a near-death experience. So, so and... he, was a, he was a keen, but not a great one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so he experienced something that he, he then referred to as a, a transfiguration. So again, it was like a transformative experience where he believes that he saw heaven. Okay. And he spent like 20 years interviewing other potentially inept mountaineers to gather their experiences and he collected all of these together because strangely enough a lot of them had fallen and called it the experience of dying from falls okay and in his experience of heaven or this kind of other realm he said that everything was transfigured as though by a heavenly light and everything was beautiful without grief without anxiety and without pain okay so i think that commonality is through a lot of NDEs. I think it's a distraction technique myself. Oh, do you? I think it's so that when he went home, 
mm-hmm. when his wife started going, I have told you, I've said, <laughs> you are not good enough to climb a mountain. And go, well, hang on a minute, because let me tell you the thing that happened. <laughs> and I've got a publishing deal. Put her off, thank goodness. <laughs> Well, speaking of interesting couples, Sir William Bartlett... Oh, my God, Kate the... just got a tits out on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish you could see this. <laughs> she went, speaking of interesting couples, and then just flashed through the lot. <laughs> um, she talked... <laughs> Come on, be professional, for heaven's I... <laughs> sake. <laughs> um, Sir William Bartlett, he talked to a lot of patients that had come close to death who had had transfigurative experiences seeing dead relatives coming to visit them you know certainly when i had people close to me who died they saw dead relatives in in the days before they passed away very Um, clever render me impotent by making it personal well done now i can't say nothing yeah because it's your experience of it yeah yeah and you've seen me cry over it and i might just cry again (laughs) yeah fine okay all right then it's true yeah but you'll like this he published all of this under um the title Deathbed Visions. He met all of these patients through the work of his wife, who was a gynaecologist. Again, then. <laughs> Probably not a very good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's my question. I mean, I'm no expert on it, but do gynaecologists commonly kill people? I don't know. I've got no idea. But believe it or not, I've never been to one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, my question is... Why was Mrs. William Bartlett so close to so many dying people? Did yeah. she have a license? Or again, like Albert Heim, was she just an enthusiastic amateur? Maybe the enthusiasm was the issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought they were quite interesting, interesting early examples of it. But yeah, a lot of this can be framed as pre-existing beliefs that are in search of evidence. So we have these ideas and then we want to find ways to back them up. But um, I did write down the nine commonalities of NDEs. Okay. So there's the sense or knowing that you're dead. There's peace and painlessness, which is a, a sense of relief and feeling like, like ribbons are being cut that are anchoring you to this world. And this kind of sense right. of peace and euphoria is what's often sought with out-of-body experiences because people think that you can replicate the sense of euphoria with by flooding the brain with things like, I said, serotonin or drugs like DMT. Yeah, so the DMT thing's a weird one. I know that people go off and have experiences Mm. with DMT. It's lethal, by the way. It's a very dangerous thing to do. But my argument with that, and any hallucinatory drug, or be that a natural or artificial one, be that acid or be that mushrooms or whatever Mm. it is, is, is putting weight and putting stock in the idea that you know, I was closer to God, or I was this or that. Mm. It just, it's like, no, you were drugged up, mate. It was, yeah. It's no difference having a morphine IV, you know, when you're in serious yeah. pain and that making the pain go away. It's not God doing it, it's a doctor doing it. Mm. It's a drug, it's an artificial mm. prompting of the brain. Yeah. But people can do what they want. I've no problem, they can do that, but don't then come back and argue that that took you to a higher plane or what have you, because it didn't. It just tricked your brain. Yeah, that's what a lot of people do seek out nowadays. And there's kind of OBE tourism, really, where people will go in search of, like, ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. will have these 
well, they say, again, transformative experiences, but involves a lot of illegal drugs, vomiting, and taking your life in your own hands in the middle of a rainforest. Yeah, look, I'm, the, the, their safety I'm not really bothered about, because that's a, a grown-up's responsibility. They can do what they want. Yeah. It's the contention of what it is that makes me yes. shake my head. Yeah. It's like, well, take ayahuasca and you'll see ghosts. It's like, no, you won't. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> You'll be really distracted, and if there's a ghost there, you're going to miss it. So anything you see yeah. as a ghost is just a hallucination that your drugged-up brain is doing. That's all that is. Yeah. You know, far be it for me to be a party pooper, but that's the, the truth of the matter. Go and do what you want. Go to your raves and your acid parties if you want, but don't come <laughs> back and say that God was there. <laughs> or you can say it, but I've got a pretty strong argument. Well, the next thing on the list is is the tunnel. What which number's is, this? What are we at now? We're at number three. Oh, from nine. Which is, this is where people see like a portal or a tunnel yeah. and then travel down it towards an intense light. Again, not all, but a lot of people experience. Particularly people who've heard of it before, before it happens. Then sometimes at the end of this tunnel, people report seeing figures that are like made from light. They're kind of glowing, they're comforting, they're warm, they're alive. And this is commonly where people report seeing you know long dead relatives and friends and these sort of intangible bodies of light okay. where they have this non-verbal communication so that's the really lovely comforting aspect of it uh, number 5 we've got the being where you meet god or some version of it okay 6 we've got your life review where you see your life flash before your eyes your actions right. and okay. their implications <laughs> At number 7 we've got the journey to heaven which again can be the floating experience and um, or just zooming off into space. Right. Eight, the reluctance to return. So the feeling there is so blissful and wonderful that you don't want to return. And some patients have been very angry after they've been resuscitated, a bit like in season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right. And nine, you have different time and space. So you're somewhere where time has no meaning and you're in eternity and you don't know if you've been gone for a minute or a year. And that is the nine tick-listy things of NDEs slash OBEs. Quite a lot of loopholes in there, isn't there? There's quite a lot of things weighted in favour of the claimant. Well, yeah, again, this is all built from um, anecdotal evidence. And again, how many of those things are placed in the consciousness? So getting it down to its bare bones, Mm -hmm. how many times have you woke up from a dream in the morning and gone, I know exactly why I had that dream? It's because yesterday I was thinking about this, that and the other. I know exactly where that dream's come from. Mm-hmm. That's because I was worrying about that yesterday. We, we have what's not anecdotal evidence because th- this is something that we all of us experience. Proof ourselves that our dreams are oftentimes blatantly influenced by what's going on in our own lives. We can make a direct mm-hmm. link. It's not a forced link. It's very, very obvious you know, mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about so-and-so for years, then I thought about them yesterday, and then I had a dream last night that I was chatting with them, you know, they're very, very directly linked. Mm. So we know that the brain is capable of doing that. We know that we have capability of placement, of things being placed in our consciousness that we can then experience in within the moment very vividly and feels real. Mm-hmm. Very, very rare when you're in a dream. It does happen, but very rare when you're in a dream do you think... This is a dream. I'm dreaming. You might hope you're dreaming. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you might go, I really hope I'm. this is a dream. I need to wake up. Yeah. I do find it interesting, though, how of all the, you know, hundreds of thousands of accounts of NDEs that have been 
gathered together that there are such huge commonalities. Again, I'm not saying this therefore means that they're all legitimate and they're all real, but how people from all walks of life are reporting experiencing very, very similar things, I find very interesting. But this is what I'm saying, though, that those commonalities are widely known. So if you just said there are nine steps, and if you would then said to me, have a guess what they are, I reckon I'd have got four of them, at least. I, I would understand that if people knew that they were about to die. If you don't know, and this is just the body's way of just dealing with that, or this is actually something esoterotic happening. Right. I think it's the timing and that these things are unexpected. That Of course, there'll be similarities between people's dreams, but the fact that all these people had these unexpected NDAs... Sorry, not NDAs, NDEs. So why are you <laughs> talking <laughs> about them? <laughs> hey! This is released um, publicly, had... what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, had, um, and had such common experiences. I find that really interesting, and I can see why doctors, especially medical professionals that would be around these sort of accounts all all the time, would start being rather concerned about the way they live their lives or, you know, the, the concept of eternity. Well, it's emotional blackmail in that respect, isn't it? Same as religionists. But I yeah. also feel that there's nothing... Like, there's no heart. It's a very comforting idea. Again, same as religion. It's a very mm. comforting idea to believe that that's going to be your experience, particularly about something like death, which most people are afraid of. You know, most people have a, yes. a fear of death, and if not universally, we have a fear of death. It's fear of the unknown, isn't it? Yeah, so I guess there's a, a quite a reassuring aspect to that. In, in that respect, it's not there's no harm in that at all. I mean, I could probably do without the life flashing before my eyes, but I mean, it was bad enough first time round. I don't want to... <laughs> watch a repeat but uh, yeah but beyond that you know the 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 emotive ideas contained mm-hmm. therein which weren't missed mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you know the, these ideas that you don't want to return that you feel comforted that you feel at peace and all those you know they're not mm-hmm. tangibles they're they're emotions well exactly that's kind of the the point of it the point of ndes it is a personal intangible emotional experience where you know, people often say that after they've had these, the two things that they believe that you can take with you are love and knowledge. What's your take on it then? What's your, because obviously my take's quite clear and straightforward. What's your, I suspect, more complicated take on this kind of thing? <laughs> my take's always going to be horrifically complicated, isn't it? I I personally put a lot of weight in, you know, near-death experiences. I'm not too sure about astral projection and that sort of thing. Mm. And if a, a well person can separate their their soul from their body to just go for a poodle about. Yeah, I mean, why, why are you doing that anyway? Even if you can do that, why are you doing that? <laughs> Get back in your body this instant. <laughs> Stop wandering off from your body. <laughs> in the X-Files, it was to do some murdering. Was it? Okay, but yeah. it was. Spoiler alert. <laughs> oh, damn, sorry. <laughs> it's a good episode. <laughs> but... I do believe in the legitimacy of some near-death experiences. And, and mm. certainly, like I said before, with the experiences that I've had being with dying people... Do you want to discuss um, it? The, I don't think you've discussed that. Do you want to discuss it? Have you, are you on the record? Are you public with that? or is that? I don't know if I am. I don't, do, I'll, do you I'll, want to be? I'll skim, I'll skim across it, but okay. I, I was with someone who I love very dearly who mm. was dying, and on, well, on two occasions, and I promise I was not involved in the death... <laughs> You know, yeah. my, my hands are clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Well, that's that's to be discussed later, but go on. 
Yeah, and on on, on both occasions. You know, the fact you can say, once again, I was with someone who was about to die. <laughs> it's okay. On one occasion, uh, the dying person said that they saw their mother in the room and, and she looked so well and she looked so beautiful and she was there to comfort them. Yeah. And in the other instance, um, they were non-verbal by that point, but they woke up from being non-responsive for a long time and watched someone come into the room. Right. And so how I choose to interpret that is based on you know the earlier experience of being told that someone's mother was coming to be with them. So I see that and those experiences that I've had as very comforting mm. in that you know the, there is something to the immortality of the soul and you don't die alone. People will come to look after you and to take you take you on. Didn't you once tell me that you, one time when you were with one of your um, victims that you <laughs> <laughs> that you tangibly saw the, the, the something at the point of death you saw something? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'd say that I saw a clear moment mm. where. The, the soul left this person's body. It was. How? It's How? hard what? to what? explain. Yeah, it's, okay. Because it's partially physical and it's partially mm. emotional. So it's like the. It's not just the body sinking into death, but it was kind of a an acknowledgement of someone being there, a, a strange acceptance, and then it was just this sense that something had gone, something had left the room, and then when I was just there with this body, that's mm. all that it was. It. It's that personhood that I that was taken away. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think I've experienced that then in that in that mm-hmm. case. But I, I don't think I would have phrased it as the soul leaving the. But you know, I think I, I I've seen the lights go out on someone. Yeah. Awful as it is, mm-hmm. I think when you told me that, I, I think I imagined like. You know, like in an old cartoon when someone like falls down a canyon or whatever and then you just see an exact replication of them in ghost form <laughs> rise up out of their body. I thought it was something like that that you'd experienced. No. It was like a Caspery kind of thing. Not not quite, no. It was more of a sense. It was just the sense in the room. It was a sense, but like with all of these things, it's they're, because they're transient Yeah. and they're, they're intangible, it's so hard to pin down. But all I, all I can say is that I interpreted it as that is the essence of that person leaving and the yeah. timing of someone else coming into the room seemed like they had come to take them away. And that helped me through the grieving process, I think, being mm-hmm. there at that point to be like, okay, I'm now, they, they've really gone. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's done. There was a certain amount of closure to it. Yes, yeah, very powerful day comfort. in court today where the defendant waxed <sighs> lyrical about how her victim's left the body she spoke about senses of peace senses of that she had done a good thing yeah yeah and anyway i've got a great deal on this chest freezer <laughs> well again it's not something i can even argue with you with this you know nor do i wish to by the way it's not something that i mm-hmm. wish to be contentious about in, yeah. as far as your own experiences are concerned so yeah with with near-death experiences you know for every positive one there's there's negative and there are many many instances of people being resuscitated mm. and shouting at the doctor saying i'm in hell i'm in hell i you know I keep working keep working and then oh, i thought you were going to say shouting at them because they were angry at being brought back from where oh they no, there are there are so many 
of like doctor poor doctors working hard and nurses trying to resuscitate someone they bring someone back i can't rule out that i wouldn't do that like i, I really can't rule that <laughs> yeah. out they bring someone back and go how could you <laughs> yeah that was my out well i'm i'm sorry but there does seem to be anger on both sides and then you know yeah. you've got people saying when i had a near death experience i suddenly became psychic and then there are so many studies into the increase in psychic phenomena following near-death and out-of-body experiences. And on it goes. <laughs> well, it's now time for everyone's favourite section, Celebrity <laughs> Seance Corner. Well, we're on a cliffhanger, aren't we? We it's are. the Fox Sisters story. It's the conclusion. Heaven is a rocking... <laughs> as always because I think we know somebody who enjoys this section very very much oh they come in a new chapter has come Simpler, what are you doing it's time for more on the Fox Sisters Simply, I sing these songs the tale goes on and on Simply, please you're ruining it again the auto heart's giving me blisters <laughs> Simply, please Simply, come here the only thing I don't know why you just said that last line is because you couldn't think of a rhyme with sisters, isn't it? <laughs> you rhyme blisters with sisters. You don't even write your own songs. Simply, we're approaching the last time you insult me in public. <laughs> and I've been so patient. Just been holding on. King keeps holding on. Please, simply. King keeps... Now, there's a thing going on here. Oh, well... When my story, <laughs> when my little narrative story of Simply and the King. Yeah. We all know that Elvis is no longer with us. Yeah. But I can't remember what at what point I killed off Simply. <laughs> <laughs> Why Simply in Heaven with the King? It's very well, flawed, this narrative. Maybe Simply yeah. is having an out-of-body experience. Oh, He's you astral genius. projecting. Simply does astral projecting. That's yeah. the new narrative within the story. These are Simply. weirdly becoming quite fleshed out characters. <laughs> they really it can't be they? long before there's an actual cartoon. <laughs> so the Fox Sisters, right, chapter I think... three. Is this the third and final part? Yes. Last week on Fox Sisters. The Fox Sisters, yes. Um, we got to the point where they'd, they got really yeah, famous. Very famous. Yeah. And... They were looking to travel, but they were, as we remember, they are Leah, Kate and Maggie, right? Yeah. So they've been doing it in New York for a few years, but then the yeah. bright lights of other states called. But Leah decided to stay in New York because she decided that she was a medium as well. So this is the older one. Yes. The one who was kind of the... the manager. Leah was the stage school mum while actually being their sister. So yeah, Leah okay. was the one pushing a lot of this. And she stayed in New York and was happily earning quite a nice living as a medium herself, trading under the Fox sisters' name. Meanwhile, Kate and Maggie, they started touring. They went doing their seance shtick around different states. And at one point, they landed in Philadelphia. Now, this is where a famous Arctic explorer called Elisha Kane comes into the scene. Can't believe you're adding characters. We're meant to be wrapping up and you're <laughs> adding characters. This Elisha Kent Kane, who we said this famous explorer, yeah. came on the scene in Philadelphia. And he wasn't a big fan of spiritualism. There's a lot of exploitation. 
in the story of the Fox sisters. And although we can take things with a pinch of salt and historical context, even looking back on this just as as people, a lot yeah. of it leaves a very bitter taste in the mouth of how these girls were treated. But were they not making their own decisions? Like I'm not I don't mean to dismiss that. Oh but, no, no. But it, were, it can, were they not proactive within it themselves? It can so, be argued, but also we're we're essentially talking about child stars. Yeah, but this wasn't like a boy band or what have you, or a, you know, a young girl band who have a manager who really works them ruthlessly and they have a bad deal and they've got to pay money back and all that sort of thing. It's well, not that. They're... They kind of do. Leo was kind of the manager and they were yeah, led okay. along by different benefactors and, and different people that they met along the way. Okay. So they, they were kind of the child stars of their day. They didn't know what to make of this life and when any temptations like drink and things like that were put in the way things started to fall apart but also there was no one there with them to look after them if they met people that would damage them and so this is where we get to philadelphia and this is where we get to the arctic explorer elisha kent kane or elisha kent kane i've no idea how you pronounce it but he met maggie and he wasn't a big fan of spiritualism he certainly didn't believe that maggie was a legitimate medium but they started seeing each other and maggie was quite young at this time not a child we're talking late teens really and they ended up having this really long distance long-term relationship where maggie was absolutely devoted to him and loved him but kane and his family didn't really reciprocate that so kane was incredibly embarrassed about being associated with essentially what was a sideshow performer. And his family, that were all very well-to-do, wanted absolutely nothing to do with Maggie. And so for years she was living on this promise that one day they'd be together. And eventually, just before he went out on one of his expeditions, he compromised and they had this sort of ring-exchanging ceremony, which was meant to be a precursor to a marriage when he came back. But I'm, I'm not a fan of him. And so when he went off on this excursion... He got ill and he died. He was only 36 at the time. But when Maggie was in complete despair about losing the love of her life, his parents forbade her from attending his funeral or having any association with him, let alone be acknowledged as his common law wife. So her claim over his estate was rejected and they tried to erase any evidence of Maggie being in their family at all. And she, the petty icon that she is, collected all of the love letters that he had sent her and published them under the name The Love Life of Dr. Kane. She hadn't reacted that well to this. She was really struggling, so she was in a deep It's sort of olden days revenge porn, isn't it? It kind of is. (laughs) (laughs) But she was really struggling, and this is when she started to really turn to drink and developed a serious problem. But because Kane was very anti-spiritualism kind of in his memory while she became a massive drinker she promised to reject spiritualism in his memory meanwhile kate married a spiritualist and was running full force on the the spiritualist medium bandwagon so all three of them are are operating three separate careers now completely three completely they've gone on different paths kate started really raking it in bringing the great and good into the seance room she would bring real apparitions into the seance room She would have Benjamin Franklin coming to visit sitters, you know, wealthy When you say she would bring them in, do you mean, like, was there someone dressed up as them coming in? Well, probably yes. That's how most people did it back then. Okay. And so once you start having apparitions 
at your seances, people are going to want them at their seance that they're paying for and their seance and their seance. And it became really, really samey and boring to Kate. And her reaction as well was to turn to drink. So we have okay. two... Leathered fox sisters. Leathered fox sisters. <laughs> Leathered, yeah. bitter fox sisters. And this is where we get to the great exposure. So in October 1888... The New York World published this interview with Maggie Fox, for which she was paid $1,200. This exclusive was like this this rage-fuelled tirade against spiritualism, the whole movement, other spiritualists, and her sister Leah, because she had been particularly criticised for not only her heavy drinking, but how this was interpreted as her being an unfit mother. And so when Maggie gave her speech on stage to a sold out audience to demonstrate Mm. how they perpetuated this fraud, Kate wanted to be in the audience to see it all. And she explained on stage this horrible deception and how they would tie an apple to a string back in their family home and have it underneath the floorboards. And so when they'd bring it up, the apple would knock against the floorboards. Sometimes they'd just drop it to make a rolling noise. And Mm -hmm. other times, as their spiritual powers developed, they would just knock their toe joints. And she demonstrated this on stage by putting her foot on a little wooden stool and emitted a series of ghostly raps. Yeah. Case closed. Yeah, this this night was called pretty much the death blow to spiritualism. I mean, it appears to have recovered somewhat. Yes. (laughs) But I don't know how. Opinion was divided. People that were detractors of spiritualism said like you say there you go it's it's a confession it's proven surely this is this has got to be done whereas the spiritualist movement and other spiritualists at the time were saying oh no she only made this confession because of negative spirits influencing her Nah, not having that at all yeah i'm i'm, I'm not i've never had that argument i've never you know the thing is what she was saying is mm-hmm. watertight So if you look at the alternative, you know, people have said, oh, she was drunk, she was this, that and the other. You know, that's not what was happening. They were contacting spirits, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But the story she gave, with the demonstration she also gave for how it was done, Mm -hmm. it's watertight. It was an exact replication of what happened previously when they said there was a spirit there. Exactly that. So if we look at the alternative, we would go, well, she was just saying that. In order to have just been saying that, to get even or whatever it was, because she'd had a breakdown, whatever the reasons, yeah. she would have had to have back-engineered and worked out how they would have done it if they mm-hmm. were faking. Yeah. Which is an enormous undertaking when something is supposedly a correspondence with the afterlife. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like working out a really complicated special effect mm-hmm. and going, how can I do it simply? And still get the same results and you can't but others were also saying that she only made this confession for the money because she failed to make it as the highest earning medium and so she kind of wanted to take other people down like where she had failed well that's probably true yeah and they kind of had a point because it wasn't long after that she'd done this big speech she recanted the confession because she kind of realized that now she'd done that she only had 1200 in a back pocket She's basically just deprived herself of her only means of income. Yeah, but there's plenty of people self-destruct when they feel at the end of their tether, isn't there? Yeah. It's not an unknown thing, is it? No, no, not at all. But it was kind of, she did this and then there was a realisation of, oh, damn, what have I done? 
But while spiritualism carried on, you know, and made superstars of plenty more people, they never really recovered. And at one point, she she tried to do more exposure to spiritualism, and under the pseudonym of, of Mrs. Spencer, she revealed several more tricks of the mediumistic kind of profession. So how slate writing was done and things like that. And it didn't work. She never really got back to the spiritualistic heyday. And Maggie, after all of this, never reconciled with Leah. Good. Leah... <laughs> No, um, good. Yeah. Good. Not yeah. enough people do that. Not enough people actually do never speak to someone ever again. Yeah, because sometimes yeah. it's kind of worth it. It's better. Yeah. It's better for you. Yeah. And Leah died in 1890. Kate followed her two years later when she died on a heavy drinking binge. And then Maggie died in 1895. So all sisters went really within five years. So are we arguing it's a tragic end? I'm not sure it is a tragic end. I think there's a degree of this story which is really rather exciting and really rather, you know, there were heydays, there were the highest highs and the lowest lows. Mm. It was a big, tumultuous adventure. It's not, it wasn't boring, was it? None of that was boring for them. It was a ride of a lifetime, wasn't it? So I do think sometimes now when people look back retrospectively, it's like, and we did it ourselves when we talked about, you know, kind of inferred the tragic end to the Fox sisters and the tragic story of the Fox sisters, but I'm not sure it was just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, although the Fox sisters are, are recognised today for their importance in spiritualism, it's in a very two-dimensional way. In, in faking spiritualism. I mean, they, they do, did. Yeah, spiritualists... No, they, just, they just did. <laughs> spiritualist churches still have Hydesville Day, so like the day where they celebrate the Fox Sisters, it's like a, a spiritual holiday. But they faked it and admitted they yeah. faked it. And I don't know why there is any discussion about that. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't get that. I think that smacks of desperation. Yeah. When people say, yes, but, yes, but, about that, mm. it smacks of desperation. Yeah. Really, what the spiritualism community should do is disown them. That's what they should do. You'd think so, wouldn't you? To distance yourself from it and be like, these were frauds. Yeah, they, they, they should say, well, that's disgusting that they do that because they've undermined everything we do. Yeah. And I don't want to even say their names ever again. That's what they should do. Yeah. Well, I, I would think don't. that many spiritualists do, but broadly, in terms of like, I think the SNU and like Spiritualist National Union and big spiritualist congregations, the majority do strangely still acknowledge the Fox sisters and, and their importance. Because they're still being exploited in death. That's why. They're poster girls for yeah, it. Yeah, they are. That's why they won't condemn it. That's why they try and yeah. find alternate takes on what happened. Yeah. But the simple fact is they faked it, obviously, and they admitted that they mm-hmm. faked it publicly <laughs> and then said, and look, I'll prove to you this is what we were doing. I'm going to do it right now. And they did it, and it was exactly the same. <laughs> That's the end of it. So no amount of, she recanted, she said this, she said whatever. It's like, yeah, she was an alcoholic as well. But a lot of alcoholics in the throes of alcoholism say things that they perhaps wouldn't say if they were sober, including dobbing themselves in. Yeah. Especially if they've got yeah. a self-destructive streak. Yeah, I do think it, it helps that, from a promotional point of view, that the Fox sisters will be those young sisters. They will be those girls forever. That's how they're, they're going to be pictured. And people will still utilise that idea of they're young, they're beautiful. How can they be fraudulent when they look and appear like this? 
And I do find it interesting how today they're celebrated and they're certainly talked about a hell of a lot more. But when they died, there was no memorial seance or, or big celebration for them. They died in poverty. Yeah, because there hadn't been at that point a retrospective look back exactly. of how can we twist this round to our <laughs> advantage. No, it is that, though. Yeah. All kidding aside, it's kind of disgusting to exploit somebody that has no control over the story that you're mm-hmm. reappropriating. Yeah. I, I, I do think that. It's kind of disgusting. But also considering how they recanted their confessions and wanted to be mediums once again, couldn't this be seen as what they wanted? They will be immortalised forever as pioneers of spiritualism. They were pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was Loopholes episode 13, the spookiest of all episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as always, we would love for you to get in touch. So you can do so by several means. You can leave comments on our Patreons at patreon.com forward slash Ian Boldsworth for him and patreon.com forward slash burials and beyond for me. Also, you can find us on Facebook at Loopholes Podcast, Instagram at Loopholes Pod, Twitter at Loopholes Pod, or you can even send us an email at loopholespodcast at gmail.com. I've been Kate Cheryl. I've been Ian Bolsworth. And we will see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Loopholes is an infinite hermit production in association with Burials and Beyond, with Kate Cheryl and Ian Boldsworth. Music by Thomas Thunderay, produced by Ian Boldsworth. Mm-hmm.